Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's international editor, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. On today's show, how prepared is the Federal Reserve for another recession? So we're ultimately trying to affect long-term interest rates to boost economic activity if there's any kind of economic downturn. And what can be done to fix the problem of the toxic office? However many kind of programs you have, it's not going to help. You really need an organisation which is committed for the managers to actually listen to their workers. And this is what they call respectful inquiry. We start in Mexico, and with his government only six months old, President López Obrador is already facing his first real crisis. Donald Trump has threatened to impose tariffs on all Mexican imports this month unless Mexico is able to cut the flow of migrants across the border. Using economic policy as a weapon is becoming a preferred tactic for Mr Trump. Just a day later, India saw it lose some of its trade privileges with America. And this is all against the backdrop, of course, of a worsening trade war with China. Patrick Fowles is the business affairs editor of The Economist. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Simon. Can we start just quickly with India? What exactly has President Trump done there and how much does it matter? Well, several months ago, President Trump indicated his frustration that India hadn't been opening up its markets enough to US companies. And in the last few days, that's translated into a kind of punitive action. India enjoys certain privileged, duty-free trade corridors with America, and those have been suspended, which means there'll be more tariffs on Indian goods. It's not enormously damaging to India, but it's certainly unhelpful mood music for the relationship between the two countries. But in a sense, it's par for the, the Trump course. We know he likes tariffs. We know he likes to fight trade battles that way. The Mexican thing, however, seems totally different. This is using tariffs for another purpose altogether. Yeah, I think the Mexican showdown is more significant in three ways. One, Mexico is much more reliant on its trade with the US, its single most critical relationship. Secondly, it's only a few months ago since the two countries plus Canada signed a new trade deal that supposedly had settled all of this. And thirdly, as you point out, the tariffs are being used as a tool to achieve a non-economic goal, namely immigration. And by mixing sort of political objectives with economic tools, the Trump administration is kind of breaking another boundary. And how's Mexico reacted? Might it work? Well, yes. I mean, to be honest, the leverage the US has is absolutely colossal. I mean, the tariffs proposed at the end of the day across the whole US economy will not cause enormous 
pain to America, whereas they could be very significant to Mexico. And it sent a delegation to Washington this week, which is there to try and reach some kind of settlement with the US. And I, I, you know, frankly, Mexico doesn't have that much bargaining power, something Mr. Trump no doubt has noticed. And what message do you think other US trade partners, like, for example, Britain, how might they interpret all this in, in their dealings with the American administration? Well, it's hard to feel very uh, confident about any new trade deal being signed. I mean, the new sort of NAFTA replacement deal clearly was supposed to put all of this stuff to bed for, you know, another decade and in fact has has almost immediately sprung up again. And I think lots of countries will be nervous about tariffs. But there is this sort of second category of activity taking place in the realm of intellectual property transfers, financial flows very high-end tech components and sanctions where a lot of countries are also being caught up in a kind of web of new controls and regulations. So it's not just tariffs that I think most countries will be looking at. It's this wider spectrum of uh, American weapons. And what about the overall effect on global markets? They've been, in a way, extraordinarily sanguine against the backdrop of this trade war going on. Is this going to change that? Well, it's interesting that I think at the start of the trade war, a lot of economists were terrified by the prospect of tariffs. And what's emerged is that if one's being totally honest about it, the actual size of the tax on trade is still really quite small relative to global GDP. So, for example, if if you took the maximum threatened tariffs for the U.S., it works out at roughly one or two percentage points of GDP. So it's it's not an enormously bad shock. And I think that's what financial markets have sort of looked at. It's hard to find that many companies who've been crippled by these tariffs. But the bigger question, I think, is to do with the idea, the broader set of rules around financial flows, tech flows, supply chains are being ripped up. And it's very hard to kind of quantify that risk. And yet I think people are palpably aware that it is risen a lot. And I think if you're an investor right now, that's exactly the question you're trying to grapple with. So do you think that, in a sense, President Trump has overreached, that he's using this economic leverage that the US has too much? The noises from the White House are the opposite, that they have discovered a sort of toolkit that has never been used before in cyber, in finance, through sanctions, through tariffs too, you know, there's still lots to experiment with there. And I think they think that this can be used for some time to enforce a very broad set of objectives on lots of different countries. Of course, the big risk in the medium term is that that network of power, so things like people relying on American companies to supply them fairly, or using US banks to invoice exports and so on. If that becomes unreliable or risky to use for a lot of countries, people will just invent a different system. And in the end, by kind of abusing America's network of soft power, it could ultimately lose its clout. Patrick, thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Next, it's been a decade since the end of America's last recession. And it's taken that long for the Federal Reserve to ask whether it's ready to fight the next one. Its governors and leading economists meet this week in Chicago to debate how monetary policy should work in a world of low interest rates. Our U.S. economics editor, Samir Keynes, is there. I'm at the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank for a conference as part of a year-long review of the Fed's monetary policy framework. So the Fed has two main tasks, keeping prices stable, so they have an inflation target of 2%, and maximizing employment. But the worry is that with interest rates around the world so low, when the next recession hits, the Fed might need to adapt and change its framework, change its toolkit to achieve its objectives. Today is the centerpiece conference of this review. Some of the biggest thinkers in economics are gathered to discuss whether the framework works now and whether it needs to change. To get an insider's perspective on the options on the table, I spoke to Neil Kashkari, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Let's first look at what did the Federal Reserve do in the Great Recession. They cut rates all the way effectively to zero, what we call the effective lower bound. Then they turned to things like quantitative easing, you know, expanding the balance sheet by buying long-term assets, and what we call forward guidance, giving signals about what the future path of monetary policy is to provide additional stimulus. They work, we believe, by affecting long-term interest rates. Because if you buy a house you don't really care what overnight interest rates are. You care about what interest rates are going to be over the next 10 years or so. So we're ultimately trying to affect long-term interest rates to boost economic activity if there's any kind of economic downturn. So some of the alternatives are things like price level targeting or GDP targeting, which basically means we would allow the economy to run hot, allow inflation to run above our target to make up for prior shortfalls. These are all fairly complex ways of trying to manage expectations about what inflation is going to be in the future. And now the idea is that if they are convinced that the Federal Reserve is going to hold off on on raising interest rates, it's going to have looser monetary policy for longer, then the boost of their confidence will be so great that maybe they'll go out there and get spending and and the recovery might happen more quickly. That's exactly right. By encouraging businesses to make investments today because they are confident that the Federal Reserve will be supporting the economy for longer in the future, as opposed to, you know, we've been saying that we have this thing called the symmetric inflation target, which means inflation can go a little bit above or a little bit below our target. But I think we've actually been signaling that it's really a ceiling, that we're never going to let inflation go above 2%. And I think that that signals to businesses, hey, the Fed may tap the brakes. Maybe I don't want to make that extra investment right now. So these alternative frameworks are trying to give the Federal Reserve credibility to say, no, we really are going to be looser or more accommodative for longer. Go ahead and make that investment. You just said that the Fed had treated its 2% inflation target like a ceiling. And and I think that speaks to one of the other potential motivations for a review, perhaps, which is maybe a recognition that the existing framework did not serve America well after the last recession. So you mentioned all these things that they did in terms of emergency, recession fighting, quantitative easing. 
But how well do you think that framework performed overall once the crisis was done? Well, I have a, you know, a lot of sympathy and a lot of admiration for the actions that the committee took once they hit the zero lower bound. Quantitative easing and Ford guidance were untested policy tools, and they were very creative and very bold. But now, 10 years later, these targets, a 2% inflation target and maximum employment, they should be in tension meaning at some point, inflation should be a constraint on allowing more job creation to take place. But here we are 10 years later, inflation is still below our 2% target, and there are still signs that there's slack in the U.S. economy. If I look at that, I objectively have to conclude that monetary policy has been too tight in this recovery. And so I think that quantitative easing was a good thing. I'm glad we did it. I would argue it didn't provide as much stimulus as we would have liked. And more recently, we've been raising rates when inflation has been below our target, I don't think that that was necessary. and I don't think that that was called for. And so partly, I think what we've experienced is a limitation in our toolkit. Partly, it's how we've used those tools. I don't think we've used the tools to their full potential. And that's why we're still seeing signs of slack in the U.S. economy after 10 years. Okay, so relating this to the review, you might think that there was some problem in the framework that encouraged the Federal Reserve to keep monetary policy too tight. And perhaps by changing the target maybe towards average inflation targeting, perhaps to allow the Federal Reserve to overshoot um, and to, to run the economy a bit hotter, you might have avoided that excessively tight monetary policy in the past. That's correct. So for me, I think the framework review is useful, not just in assessing what framework or what tools we have, but also honestly looking in the mirror and asking ourselves, have we used the tools as they were designed to be used? I would argue the answer is no. But then I suppose if you're not sure that the old framework was was implemented properly, then it might be difficult to have confidence that a new framework would really fix the issue. Exactly right. So just think about something like price level targeting or nominal GDP targeting. The basic idea behind that is the Federal Reserve would commit to allow inflation to run above our 2% target to make up for prior inflation shortfalls. Well, if we felt pressure to raise rates when inflation was below our target in this recovery, how can we credibly tell the market or tell ourselves we will stand by and let inflation run above target and keep rates low just because we've adopted this different framework. I don't find it remotely credible. And I would I want to challenge ourselves and challenge my colleagues to answer the question, you know, why would anyone believe that we would do it after the next recovery when we wouldn't do it in this recovery? And so recognizing that, I think, is a core part of us doing this review. How high do you think the chances are that there will be a real change as a result of this review? Well, one change could be a change in framework, and I think the bar is high for fundamentally changing the toolkit or changing the framework that we use, and I'm not ruling that out. What I'm more hopeful of is that we will at least acknowledge, hey, we didn't use the current tools to their full potential, and maybe we will come out of this framework review more committed to using our framework to its full potential going forward. If we were to do that, I feel like this framework review would have made a meaningful contribution to the way we conduct monetary policy. Neil, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. That was Neil Kashkari talking to Samir Keynes. If you enjoy our journalism, why not try out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. And finally, what kind of company would you think of if they were described as toxic? With the widespread bullying of staff, senior management having a bunker mentality, 
and just under 40% of employees as a result of their work developing mental or physical health issues. An investment bank, perhaps. A tech firm in Silicon Valley. The government. No, this description was made about the human rights charity Amnesty International in an independent report the charity commissioned itself. I'm joined by the economist, Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, who's been writing about this. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. So, what sort of problems did this report describe at Amnesty? This was a place where people really were keen to work, but felt ignored. So there was a big move to shift the staff out to the places where human rights abuses were occurring. But the staff felt they were not very well consulted about this. Their concerns weren't listened to. And of course, they ended up being placed in really stressful environments. And this had a negative effect on their health, not just because they had to listen to all these awful stories, but because they didn't feel safe in their working environments. And the managers seemed to regard the staff as lucky to be working for a charity and to be doing good stuff, and so were less inclined to listen to staff concerns. So in a sense, we hold charities and such organisations to higher standards, and the bosses, conversely, sort of hold themselves to lower standards. Yes, it's the odd thing. They felt they were doing good work and they didn't have to worry about the lower echelons of the staff. I think the the underlying point is that all working environments have hierarchies. All people who are in managers, you know, see that as an enhancement of their status and they can enforce that status in various ways. And that can be through bullying the people underneath them or it can be the sort of you know, well, I had it hard when I was working my up the organization, so you have it hard too. It's not confined to profit-making companies. In fact, it might even be worse at uh, non-profit-making environments. Yes, Phil, I was going to ask you about that and about a, a pet theory I have myself based on my own experience in moving from what I thought was the cutthroat, vicious world of investment banking to the much more genteel, as I saw it, nicer environment of public service broadcasting many decades ago. And I was shocked to find not a toxic environment in my new workplace, but in a way, something much more viciously competitive than had been in the city. And I put it down to two things. Firstly, the bankers earned a lot more money and so were willing to put up with a lot more without complaining. And secondly, that in a commercial organization, because there's a profit and loss account, because there are internally there are management accounts, there's some sort of objective or quasi-objective measure of how well you're doing. Whereas in a not-for-profit environment, you're really only as good as your boss thinks you are. Yes, I think if you look across professions and think of places notoriously bad. Academia, the old joke is that the disputes are so vicious because the stakes are so small. Staff rooms in schools, these are uh, pretty uh, toxic places they can be. In hospitals, you get the consultants who lord it all over the junior doctors. You, of course, can get this in you know, politics as well. These seem to be pretty vicious affairs. So it's a function of a working environment. And as soon as you start creating managers and employees at two different levels, then you create the potential for these this kind of behaviour. And does the report suggest any solutions or can you think of any solutions? Well, um, it really, the attitude has to come from the top down. Now, Amnesty International had some of the things you might expect, counselling, you had a whistleblowing phone line you could call independent people who would judge it. But many of the staff felt they didn't know about these services or that they weren't explained very well. 
about 80% of them said they didn't know how to help a colleague who was in stress. So, you know, if you get the sense from an organization that the bosses think one way, however many kind of programs you have, it's not going to help. You really need an organization which committed for the managers to actually listen to their workers. And this is what they call respectful inquiry. When you were finance editor, for example, you would ask the staff what they thought about what subjects to cover this week, and you would I listen. I never listen to you, Phil. <laughs> and you would listen, and then they would feel honoured or they would feel empowered by the fact that they knew that you were listening to them. Phil, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's Money Talks. And while you're still with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.